Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. All right, so I want to begin tonight by talking about two young men. These are, these are made-up boys, but Brad and Kevin are 17-year-old boys that did not grow up in a Christian home. They did not grow up with Christian parents. They did not grow up going to church, but they were invited by friends to go to youth camp. So Brad and Kevin go to youth camp. Both boys hear the same sermons every night. They go to church group devotions. They hear Bible studies. They're around Christian kids. They experience the same exact thing the whole week. On the last night of camp, the preacher begins to preach about sin, preaches about the gospel, preaches about the need for Jesus, talks about hell, the need to repent and believe in Christ. And so in that moment, Brad, again, never grew up in a Christian home, never heard any of this stuff before, he trusts Christ for salvation. Kevin, on the other hand, is thinking more about the girls he's going to meet after the worship service. He's thinking about how I'm hungry and why does this pastor keep going on and on and on? And Kevin leaves youth camp never to trust Christ for salvation, lives his whole life, never accepts Jesus. And so both boys, non-Christian home, same camp experience, same sermon, same everything. One trusts Christ, one doesn't. So here's the question. Why are some people saved and other people not? Why did God show you grace, but maybe your coworker is not a Christian? So there's three answers. Number one, it was all up to you. Number two, it was a cooperative effort between you and God. Or number three, it was all up to God. Now, in option one and two, if it's all up to you or if it's cooperation between you and God, does that leave room for you to boast that you did something? Yes. So what I'm saying is option number three. It's all up to God. So tonight, we are going to continue talking about God's sovereign decree. And remember, we're in chapter three of the confession. And we only looked at paragraph one and two because it was so much depth and it was such new material. Now we're getting into the rest of it, which talks about predestination. Now, remember what we talked about last week, if you were here. Does God make his choice based upon what he foresees is going to happen? No. Does God know what's going to happen? Yes. The question is, does God merely just know what's going to happen, or does God also determine what's going to happen? And what we believe from the scriptures is God not only knows what's going to happen, but he determines what's going to happen. So here we're getting into the doctrine of predestination. So what I want to do is I want to read paragraphs 3 and 4, and then we're going to look at a lot of scripture tonight, okay? Because anytime you talk about the doctrine of predestination, it brings a lot of um, emotions. And so I've had people over the years say, I don't believe in predestination. I don't believe in it. And I say, well, that's interesting because the word's in the Bible. You can't read the Bible and not see the word predestination. So the question is not whether you believe in predestination. The question is, what view do you hold to? How do you understand it? Because the Bible teaches that word. So let's see what the confession says, and then let's read the scripture. So paragraph, get my glasses on here. So we are on page, my glasses, 
page 16, paragraph or chapter 3, God's decree, paragraph 3. Okay. By God's decree and for the demonstration of his glory, some human beings and angels are predestined or foreordained to eternal life through Jesus Christ, to the praise of his glorious grace. Others are left to live in their sin, leading to their just condemnation, to the praise of his glorious justice. Okay, and then paragraph four. These predestined and foreordained angels and people are individually and unchangeably designated, and their number is so certain and definite that it cannot be either increased or decreased. Okay, now, what this paragraph shows is that God has made a sovereign election, and it also talks about how this number was fixed, that it's a fixed number. So God's not like in the process of selecting people now. It was already done, and the number is a fixed number of people whom he has chosen. And so let's look in our Bibles at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, because what we will find out from Ephesians is the timing of this choosing. And I want to show you that these words are in your Bible, so don't be afraid of them. So let's actually start in verse 3. So Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Okay, there's two verbs you see there, right? God chose and God predestined. Okay? Now, the context here demands what we would call unconditional election. And what we mean by unconditional is there are no demands, there are no prerequisites for God to do his choosing. Do you see anything in this passage that says, God chose us because he saw we would have faith. God chose us because he looked down the corridors of time and saw what we would choose. Do you see anything like that in the text? What does it assume? He says he, he predestined us to be holy and blameless, which means what were we before God chose us? How did he view us? Sinners, unholy and blameworthy. Okay, so when did God's choice take place? Before, before the foundation of the world. Okay, which means what? <laughs> before the earth was created, God made his choice. God chose, God predestined, God selected, whatever word you want to use, particular individuals to be saved. Okay, now, let's just talk logically here for a moment. If God chose some to be saved, what does that mean? Others won't be chosen. Okay, now we need to talk about that. Okay, because you, 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 you have a choice. Either everybody's saved... Because God chose everybody, which the Bible doesn't teach, right? Is everybody saved? No. no. Okay. Only some are saved. So God chooses some. God does not choose all. 
How God, how we understand that, we'll talk about a little bit later on tonight. But what I want you to understand here is that the timing of the choice was before creation. And the purpose of the choice was God's choosing. There was nothing in us that moved God to choose us. Because if you go down and read verse 11, go down and read verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to what? The purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So here's the question. Why did God choose us? It was his purpose to do so. Was it an arbitrary choice? No. Do we know why God chose you and not others? No. Did God choose any of us because we deserved it? No. Did God look down and say, hey, these are awesome people. I think, that, I, think I want to choose them. No. So there were no conditions that we had to meet in order for God to choose us. And God's choice was before the foundation of the world. And it's a definite number, which only makes sense. If God made his choice before time, it's a, it's a fixed choice. God's not changing it on the fly. God made the choice. It's a fixed choice, which means there are a fixed number of elect people in the, in the history of the world can't decrease it can't increase it's the same number because god made that choice okay are we are we good to go okay now let's look at paragraph five those people who are predestined to life were chosen by god before the foundation of the world we just looked at that according to his eternal and unchangeable purpose and secret counsel of his good pleasure of his will. We just saw that in verse 11. He chose them in Christ for eternal glory purely as a result of his free grace and love without anything else about them serving as a condition or cause moving him to do so. Okay, so that's very important. Again, this paragraph tells us the timing, the purpose, but it also says that it teaches unconditional election, meaning, look at that last thing there. There was nothing in them that caused or moved God to do it. Okay. So let's talk about unconditional and conditional election. Unconditional election means this. There are no conditions that you and I have to meet in order for God to choose us. Conditional election would mean what? There has to be conditions we have to meet in order for God to choose us. And so that's what the Arminians, when they argued against the Reformed back in this time period, they argued for the foreknowledge view. Now I gave this, I gave this analogy last week, but I'm going to give it again. So what is the Arminian view of conditional foreknowledge election? It's this. Okay, let's talk about Brad and Kevin. Remember Brad and Kevin that we started out with? Okay, so which one of them... Which one of them accepted Christ? I can't remember. Was it Brad? Brad. Okay, Brad. Brad, Brad accepted Christ. Kevin did not. Okay, so in the Arminian foreknowledge view, it would say God looked through the corridors of time before history, before the creation of the world. God looked down to that youth camp, and God saw Brad on his knees crying and trusting Christ for salvation. And when God saw that, he ratified Brad's decision and said, I see Brad choosing me. I'm going to choose Brad. Okay, if God looked down the corridors of time, what would he see about Kevin? He would never see Kevin trusting him for salvation. So God says, I never see it, so I'm not going to choose. So what are the conditions that have to be met in order for God to choose you? 
You have to choose him first. Or he has to see faith. Or he has to see repentance. God has to see something you do in order for him to choose you. So in, in unconditional election, which we believe, God makes the choice because God makes the choice. In conditional election, it's not so much God choosing, he's ratifying the decision that you've already made, that he sees you making. Does that make sense? Ratify. Okay. So, let's turn to John 6, because we are going to see Jesus teach the doctrine of election in John chapter 6. Some people, like, again, the word predestined is not in chapter 6, the word chosen is not in chapter 6, but the concept is... And we've got to unpack this and look at this very carefully. Okay, so let me give you the context of John chapter 6. It's a long chapter. Two big events happen in John chapter 6. Jesus feeds the 5,000. Then Jesus walks on water. Then he goes across the lake, they hunt him down, and they're like, we, we want more of what you're doing here. Because Jesus just gave them a happy meal. He just gave them a free meal. And so Jesus is basically saying, you know, you guys remember Moses in the wilderness? God sent manna down from heaven to feed them. Well, I'm greater than Moses, and I am the bread of life. I'm the bread that gives you life. And they're like, wait a minute, that's way too much for us to handle. Only, only God gives bread. You can't be bread. They had just received the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. Let's pick up in verse, let's just pick up in verse 35. John, is everybody there? John 6, 35? Mm -hmm. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you, you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. Okay, let's stop right there. There's a problem in verse 36. What's Jesus saying? You've seen me in the flesh. You've seen me feed you, the 5,000 you were there. You saw it. But what's the problem? You aren't believing. You're not believing in me. Even though I'm saying I'm the bread of life, you've seen me with your own eyes, you're not believing. So here's the question. Why are they not believing with Jesus right in front of them? I mean, what more could you ask for? Jesus right in front of them, Jesus feeding them. Why are they not believing? And here's Jesus' answer. The reason they're not believing is because of God's sovereign election. And like, how do I get that? Okay, let's keep reading. Verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do, the will of my, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Okay, what does verse 37 say? First thing we see there in verse 37, the Father has given a people to Jesus. Now, let me just, I'm going I'm to write on the board here. I know those of you that are on the FaceTime can't see this as much, but if you want to come in person, this is the value you get of being in the classroom. Okay. So, who's the one giving? The Father. Okay. He, he gave... To Jesus, what? What does your Bible say? All that the Father gives me will come to me. So, all, there's this group called the all that the Father gave to Jesus. So we have to ask the question, who is the all? And when did God give them? 
We've already looked at Ephesians chapter 1. When did God do the choosing? Okay. okay. Now, before you answer the question, if you say all is every single person who's ever lived, finish the rest of the sentence. What does Jesus say? All that the Father gives me will what? Will what? Will come. And that means have faith, right? Does it say may come? Might come? Will come. So here's, here's the way you can say it. If you were given to Jesus by the Father before the foundation of the world, you will come to Jesus. Let's ask it a different way. Does everybody come to Jesus? No. So can the all be every single person who's ever lived? Or is the all limited to those who come? It's limited to those who come. Because they will come. And not everybody comes. So who comes? Those given. When were they given? Before the foundation of the world. So think about the all here, not as every single person who ever lived, but you can think about them as the elect or those that were chosen. When did it happen? Before the foundation of the world. So if we take Ephesians chapter 1 and we take John chapter 6 together, you can say it this way. The Father gave a group of people or the Father chose a group of people, gave them to Jesus before the foundation of the world, and at a point in time, they will come to faith in Christ. Not might, not may, they will come. Why will they come? Because God gave them. And if God gave them, they will come. So, who are these people and when were they given? The people of the elect, when were they given before the foundation of the world? And if you go through the Gospel of John, you see this language. So in John 10, 29... Jesus says, my father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. There again, you have the father giving to Jesus the people. John 17, 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. So the all here is none other than the elect those whom God has chosen before the foundation of the world. Now, we have two other verses to talk about before the foundation of the world. Because what, what did Ephesians say? God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Okay, what, is first, what does 2 Timothy 1.9 say? God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus when? Before the ages began. So when did God give us grace? When did God call us? When did God shower us with his purpose and grace? Before the ages began. Okay? okay let me ask you another question. When was your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life? It's when you went forward to the altar call, right? Your name was written in, and if you lose your salvation, you know, it's only written with a pencil, because it, you know, it may, be, may be erased out of there. No. What does it say there in Revelation 13, 8? All who dwell on the earth will worship it. This is talking about the beast, the mark of the beast. All who dwell on the earth will worship it, except for everyone whose name has not been written when before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb that was slain. So when was your name written in the Lamb's book of life? Before the foundation of the world. When were you chosen? Before the foundation of the world. When did God give you grace? Before ages began. When did the Father give you to Jesus? Before creation. Do you see how it all comes together? Okay. Go ahead and ask your question, Lisa. I may get to it here in just a moment. You probably will. But go ahead and ask. <laughs> so, but what about 
free will. What about free will? We'll talk about that. Okay. That's right. okay. Well, let me let me. Okay. So like I will answer. I will answer that with this next point. Okay. So if somebody is predestined, can they later choose not? No. Okay. So if they're, they're predestined, they will. They will come. Okay. That's my second point here. Okay. So um, I will answer your question in the second point okay. that's already here. So the second point is this: these people will infallibly come to Christ alone. They will come. Now, I want you to go down and look at verse 44 because you may sound like Jesus is not making sense. What does verse 44 say? We're back in John here. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I'll raise him up on the last day. No one can come. Okay, so here's the question. If no one can come and all the Father gives will come, how do you deal with that? Here's the point. You can't come unless God does something in you to make you come, and because you were chosen, you will come. Does that answer your question? So here's, here's the answer to your question, maybe on, this, on this, this statement. There is nobody whom God has chosen who will not come to faith. All the elect will eventually come to faith in Christ. Does that answer your question, Lisa? Yeah, but it's kind of sad because you don't know if your husband or your wife or... We're going to get to, yeah, we're going to get to the emotional, I don't mean emotional, but like the hard, those are the hard, that's the hard, like there's the truth of predestination and there's the heart of it where it is, there's the sadness and the, yeah, and I don't want to minimize that because that's, okay. Now, so the Father has given you to Jesus, and if the Father has given you to Jesus, you will come, and what happens when you come? What's the third thing Jesus says here? Jesus will never cast out those who come to him in faith. Verse 37. I will never cast out. Never. In the original Greek text, this is what we call a double negative. It means you can kind of translate like this. Jesus will never, never, will not ever cast you out. He will not reject us. Once you come to faith in Christ, you are eternally secure in Christ. John 10, 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. There's that same never and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Okay, and then why will, why will that happen? Because fourth, Jesus will lose nothing of these people whom the Father has given him. What does verse 39 say? I will lose nothing of all the Father has given me. I'll lose nothing. God, Jesus, if you've been given to Jesus from the Father, you will come and when you do come, you won't be lost. Jesus won't lose you. And the word lose there is an interesting word. It's where we get our word lost, a lost person, which really means to perish or spend eternity in hell. In other words, if God chose you, God will make sure you come. And if you come, Christ will keep you and you'll never be lost. And then finally, fifth, Jesus will raise these people up on the last day. Which means final judgment. You'll be saved from final judgment on the last day. Now here's the huge question. How do you know if you've been sovereignly given to Jesus by the Father? I have people ask this question to me a lot. Every time I preach on predestination, there's always somebody that comes up after the service, somebody that emails me. One time somebody caught me in the bathroom. <laughs> oh right before the service. And it was even like a totally different subject. 
How do you know you're one of the elect? It's the very simple answer. What's the simple answer? You've come to Jesus in faith. Look at verse 40. Jesus gives the answer in verse 40. What does he say? <coughs> For this is the will of my Father. Anyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. So the question is not, man, I really hope I'm one of the elect. I don't know if God has chosen me. The question is, have I come to faith in Jesus? And if you've trusted in Jesus for salvation, that's evidence that you've been given. Because what is, what's the logic? If the Father gave you to Jesus, what's going to happen? You will come. And if you've come in faith, that's proof that you are one of the chosen. Does that make sense? So, the real question is, have you trusted in Jesus? One of the things you, you don't do in evangelism when you go talk to somebody that's not saved, you don't go up to them and say, you know, you really need to search the deep things of God and make sure you're one of the elect. And I really can't help you with that. Anybody ever do that? What would you say to somebody? You would say, God is holy. You're not. You're a sinner. You need Jesus. Would you repent and believe in Jesus now? What are you telling the lost person to do? Come to Jesus. And if they do, it's because God has worked in their life to bring them to himself. Okay? So Ephesians chapter 1, God chose us before the foundation of the world. God predestined us. There's a choosing predestined language. John 6, the Father gave Jesus a people and they will come. Let's go to Acts 13.48. Let's, let's look at another passage of Scripture here. So one book over, and I want you to... So Paul, all of chapter 13, basically, Paul and Barnabas, not most of the chapter, they're at a synagogue in this town in Antioch and Pisidia, and Paul's preaching the gospel, and the people are really excited, and um, a lot of people get saved. And so there's a commentary that Luke makes about the Gentiles, not just the Jews, but the Gentiles. So Acts 13, 48. Everybody there? Yeah. <laughs> okay. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Okay, which comes first? Believing or being, do you believe in order to be appointed to eternal life, or do you believe because you were appointed to eternal life? Which comes first? Okay, and who appointed you? What does appoint mean? Okay, so the reason they believed is that they were already appointed to eternal life in the sense that they were among the elect chosen before the foundation of the world. Notice what it doesn't say. I've heard it doesn't say they were ordained to believe, which, which is fine. What were they appointed to? They were appointed to eternal life. And because they were chosen or predestined or given. So let's take Acts 13, 48. Let's take John 6, 37 side by side. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Those appointed to eternal life will believe. You see the parallel? Okay, so think about it this way. The Father gave... 
the Father appointed. The Father gave, and all to Jesus they will come. The Father appointed, and they did what? They believed. So believed corresponds to coming, appointed corresponds to giving, which corresponds to predestined. So you've got the Father doing the predestining, you got the timing being before the foundation of the world, and you got the result being that those who were predestined actually believe, actually come to faith. Okay. Now, the last sentence in paragraph three addresses what we call the doctrine of reprobation. So let's go back to the confession, and we want to go slowly through this. So, look at paragraph three, three, the last sentence. Is that rain? Yeah. Oh my gosh. She's like, usually does this like in May. <laughs> it's, it's weird. Yeah, it's really weird. Okay. Okay. Others are left, others, okay. Others are left to live in their sin, leading to their just condemnation to the praise of his glorious justice. Okay. Others are left in their sin. So here's, here's what the doctrine of reprobation states, okay? Let me just read it. This is from Louis Burkhoff. Not that you need to know who Louis Burkhoff is, but he's a Reformed theologian. His systematic theology is what I often go to, but here's, what, here's, here's the definition of reprobation, okay? Reprobation is the opposite of predestination. Reprobation may be defined as that eternal decree of God whereby he's determined, and here's the key word, to pass over some men by the operation of his special grace to punish them for their sins, the manifestation of his justice. Okay. Those whom God does not choose, he passes over and leaves them in their sin. Now, because God does not choose them, what do they result in? They don't go to heaven, right? Okay. Now, reprobation is not, and I don't expect you to necessarily remember this term, equal ultimacy is what some people think is going on here. Okay, so let me give you what some people would say. Okay, let me, let me, let me do it this way. Let me draw it on the board here. So, let's start out with all humanity, okay? Is all, let's just, let's just do some logic here. Let's do some theological logic, okay? Is all humanity guilty in their sin? Yes. yes. Okay, well, we all agree with that. Does all humanity deserve hell? Yes. Okay. Now, what would happen if God left all humanity in that state? What would happen? They go to hell because of our own personal sin. Okay, now, so God doesn't have to do anything in anybody for them to go to hell. They're already going to go there because of their sin, right? Okay. So does God have to actively make people sin? Does God have to actively infuse sin? Or can God just say, I'm choosing to leave, I'm choosing to leave some people in their natural state of sin, and I'm not going to intervene to do anything. Okay. So God leaves them. He doesn't do anything 
in them to make them sinful. He just says, I'm leaving them in their sinful state. Okay. For the elect, does God do something in the elect that he doesn't do in the non-elect? Yes. What does God do? God actively chooses them. God actively calls them. God does something in them that they can't do themselves. So predestination is God's active work in bringing sinners to salvation. Reprobation, God does not have to actively do anything in the non-elect to make them more sinful. He just passes them over and leaves them in the state that all of us would have been left in if God had not intervened. So let me just say it this way. Okay, I've prayed this before. And see if you agree with this prayer. God, I praise you that you chose me before the foundation of the world because you were under no obligation to choose me. And if you had left me in my sin and passed me over, you would have done me no, just, no injustice and I would get exactly what I deserve. Is that an appropriate prayer to pray? Okay. So God didn't have to do anything in me to make me sinful. I was already sinful. But God had to do something to bring me to himself in election. So, in the case of the elect, he intervenes and appoints Christ as their mediator to rescue them from their sinful state election. Okay? In the case of the non-elect that he doesn't choose, Jesus is not their mediator. He basically leaves them in their state of sinfulness, which is called preterition, and thus determines to visit justice upon them because of their sin. Okay. So, when we say, some people say, some people call it, have you guys ever heard the term double predestination? You guys believe in double predestination. Okay, so I understand what they mean by that. So let's just, let's just talk logically. If God chooses some, does that mean others aren't chosen? Okay, now, so it's double in the sense that there are some chosen and some not. But what they mean by double predestination is that God actively does something in the elect and God actively does something in the non-elect. And that's not what we're saying. We're saying it's not equal. God actively does something in the elect. The non-elect, he just simply leaves to themselves. Just leaves them alone. Okay? Because everybody starts out guilty and hell-deserving. And so for God to choose some, he's not showing injustice. He's showing mercy. Because everybody deserves justice. Does that make sense? Okay. Any questions before we go any further? Okay. Now, when did God make the choice? Okay. So let me ask you a second question. Is God not only sovereign over the choice, but is God sovereign over how it is that you come to faith in Christ? Is he, is he sovereign not only just in choosing you, but in orchestrating all the events that bring you to salvation? Yes. Okay. And that's what paragraph six tells us. So let's go to paragraph six. Just as God has appointed the elect to glory, so he has, by the eternal and completely free purpose of his will, foreordained all the means. Okay? All, all the means means every single way that God's going to bring you to himself. Therefore, those who are elected, being fallen in Adam, are redeemed by Christ, or effectually called to faith in Christ by his spirit working in an appropriate time. They're justified, adopted, sanctified, kept by his power through faith to salvation. None but the elect are redeemed by Christ, or effectually called, justified, adopted, sanctified, and saved. OK? 
Okay, what, what he's saying is, or what the confession is saying is, not only did God make the choice of who will be saved, but God also made the choice of how you will be saved in all the aspects of it. So all the means necessary to bring you to faith. So think about that for a moment. So the person who when you were, accepts God when, on their deathbed. Yes. So God sovereignly chooses when you were born, where you were born, when you hear the gospel, how you hear the gospel, the timing of all that. God is sovereign over all that. And you'll see that in Romans 8.30. So let's go to Romans 8.30. I'm trying to make this easy by going next book to next book. John, Acts, Romans. So Romans 8.30 is what we call the order of salvation. Okay? And I'm going to draw it up here up on the board. So um, I'll, I'll read this. Romans 8.30. Those whom he, what? Predestined. predestined, he also called. called. And those whom he called, he also justified. justified. And those whom he justified, he also, I'm running out of room here, glorified. Okay. When did the predestination take place? Before the foundation of the world. When are you glorified? When you get to heaven. Okay, so this is eternity future, heaven. This is eternity past, before the foundation of the world. Okay. Did God at a point in time call you? Yes. When he called you, what did he do? And we'll talk about this as we go further through the confession. He opened your heart. He gave you the gift of faith. He caused you to be born again. You believed and you were justified. So every aspect of your salvation from first to last, all the means necessary, God set up for you. Okay? But there's a particular order. And I want to show you the order there. And, I, I, and I, the reason I'm not having you turn to 2 Thessalonians in your ESV is because I like the way the New American Standard translates this a little bit better than the ESV. So there on your sheet, 2 Thessalonians 2, 13-14 from the New American Standard. We should always give thanks to God, to you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has what? Chosen you when? What does it say there? From the beginning, for salvation, through sanctification by the Spirit, and faith in the truth. It was for this he elected, he called you through the gospel, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus. Okay, I want you to look, let's look at this passage of Scripture. So I wish I had this whole passage of Scripture up on the board. We would do a little diagram. Okay. All right, so what's the key word there? God did what? God chose. Okay, so we got what? God did what? God chose. When did he choose? From the beginning. Okay, that's just another way of saying what? The Before the foundation of the world. Okay, God chose you. And what did he choose us to? Salvation. Okay, so let's make a distinction here. Be if you're elected, does that mean you're automatically saved? Okay, if you're predestined, okay, let me ask this way. When do you actually get saved? The moment you trust Christ for salvation. So you're elect unto salvation. You're elect to be saved, but you're not actually saved until that moment that you trust Christ for salvation. Now you will, but God has chosen you to be saved. And there's two things that it comes through. 
Okay? This calling comes through... Okay, there's a calling. And it comes to the what? The gospel. You guys see that there? This is what we would call an outward calling. So what's the order? God chose you before the foundation of the world to be saved. And how did that come to you? There was an outward calling in the gospel. Somebody preached the gospel to you. You heard the gospel outward. But, notice what he says there. Through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. Okay, so there's a third thing. There's the Spirit. And there's belief. Okay, so here's the order of your salvation. And God's sovereign over all. God chose you before time. At a point in time, he called you through the gospel, outwardly, through the preaching but he also did a work in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit did a calling inwardly, tugging at your heart, pulling at your heart, drawing you, calling you, regenerating you. And then, as a result of that, you personally believed. So why did you believe the gospel? Well, you can go back one step and say, because the Spirit did a work. Okay? Or you can go back one step and say, because God chose me. So why does anybody believe? They were called. Why were they called? Because they were predestined. Why were they predestined? It was God's choice. <laughs> okay? So, <clears throat> sanctification by the Spirit is first because God has to do that work of the Spirit in our lives in order for us to be made alive so that we can believe. Um, so that means to be set apart. So let's just go down there where it says, here's the order. I think I just drew that on the board. Before time, God chose sinners to be saved. At a point in time, the gospel was preached to you in the general call. Then the Holy Spirit internally and effectually called you since you were chosen so that you would believe. And when the Spirit called you, he did an inward change in you. He sanctified you. He cleansed you. So why did you believe? You believed because God sovereignly chose you. Why did you believe? Because God sovereignly called you. And you believed. Does God believe for you? Does God believe for you or in you? No. Who, who does the believing? We do. We believe. So the question is not, okay, I don't have a problem if somebody says, I chose Jesus. Yes, but why? You chose Jesus because you were called and you were predestined to do so. All that the Father gives me, what? Will come. All those appointed to eternal life, believed. God chose you before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless and love. He predestined you. Okay. So, election is God's sovereign choice of particular sinners to be saved and God's sovereign over the timing the number's fixed, and God's also sovereign over all the ways that he brings it about. Okay? Now, I want to deal with objections, because you asked a question last week, and I want to answer your question, but objections, okay? You said, what about free will? And so every time you talk about predestination, there's going to be objections. People are like, I don't like this, or I don't agree with this, so I want to be fair and answer. I've got four tonight. There's probably like a bunch more, but let's just look at four objections. These are four of the 
I don't know if they're the most common, but they're just the ones we're dealing with tonight because they're the ones I'm, I'm going with. Okay, so here's objection number one. Unconditional election makes God unfair or unloving. That's the first objection that you're ever, always going to hear. What? That makes God... If God chooses some but not others, God must be unfair. Or he must not be loving. Okay. So let's just remember something. God is under no obligation to save anyone. So for him to choose to save some does not make him unfair. So let's ask the question. What are you asking God if you want him to be fair? God, be fair. Okay. Choose everybody or, God, I want you to be fair. Everybody gets what they deserve. <laughs> you can look at the other, say, God, I want you to be fair. Okay, God, be fair. Okay, everybody's dead. Nobody's chosen. Everybody, everybody goes to hell because I'm being fair and you get what you deserve. That's one way to look at it. So let me ask you a question. Just in the biblical testimony alone, if you start back to Genesis and go all the way to Revelation, has God treated everyone equally in exactly the same way? Did God call all the pagan moon worshipers in Ur, or did he just call Abraham? And why did he call Abraham? Did God provide a Passover lamb for the Egyptians, or did he only provide it for the Israelites? Did God provide a sacrifice of atonement for the Canaanites, or was it just for the Israelites? Did God choose the Moabites, the Canaanites, the Edomites in the same way that he did Israel? Did God choose every single fisherman in Galilee to be his 12 disciples, or did he choose 12? Did Jesus choose to heal every single person? So all throughout the Bible, God or Jesus makes a discriminating choice not to do something. So even just the biblical data shows us that God is always making choices, and he's not always choosing everybody. So from out of the mass of guilty humanity, God sovereignly decides to give mercy to some of them. What do the rest get? They get justice. The saved get mercy. The unsaved get justice. But nobody gets injustice. Does that make sense? Could God choose not to save anybody? Would he be just in doing that? For God to choose to save some and not all, what's he give the some that he chooses to save? Mercy. What does he give the ones he chooses not to save? Justice. Does, God, does anybody ever get injustice? No. no. So nobody can ever say, God, you're unfair. God, you're unjust. Because everybody deserves to be punished. And for God to give some, many, and, and so Paul, so you're in Romans 8, right? Okay, go over one chapter. Romans 9. Paul teaches the doctrine of election. And he knows that there's going to be an objection. Because if you go back up and you look at verse 10. Let's go back up and look at verse 10. Right there, Romans chapter 9, verse 10. Not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will I serve, will serve the younger, as is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Okay, 
wait a minute, God. You're saying that you love one boy over the other and you chose one boy over the other and you did it before either one of them were born and that you did it because before either one of them did it good or bad? That's not fair. Okay, read the next verse. What does Paul say? What shall we say then? Verse 14. Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. What's the objection? God must be unjust. That's unfair. And what's Paul saying? Absolutely not. You can't say it's unfair. Now, you may not like God, Paul's answer. What's Paul's answer why it's not unfair? Look what he says there. He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth, so that he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. What's Paul's answer? It's not unfair for God because God has the right to save whom he wants to save. You might not like Paul's answer, but that's his answer. I can show compassion to whom I want to show compassion, and I can withhold compassion to whom I want to hold compassion. Nobody is forcing me, this is God speaking, nobody's forcing me to save anybody. I'm not obligated to save anybody. I have the sovereign right to dispense my mercy however I want to do it. So God's choice save or choose or show mercy does not depend on human will. That is our decision to believe, nor does it depend on our doing some kind of work. God merely chooses to save because he wants to save. So there's no merit that moves God to save. God saves because God has the right to save. Okay. That's objection number one. So how would you answer the objection? This makes God out to be unfair. What would you say? No, God's not unfair. If you want fairness, God would send everybody to hell because that's what we deserve. If you want God to be fair, you'll get what you deserve. God is being just in the fact that he could send everybody to hell, but he doesn't. He chooses to save some and show mercy to some. The rest he leaves, but he doesn't owe anybody anything. And so you can't say God's unjust. All you can say is God has the right to show mercy to him who wants to show mercy. You may not like that answer, but that's the biblical answer. I don't know of any other answer besides what Paul says is the answer. Jeff, what were you going to say? I'm, I'm, I'm holding it for the end. Okay. <laughs> Hold it for the end. So I'm trying to, I'm trying to do... Trying to process it. Yeah. And you're going to have to help. So that's, that's objection number one. Okay. Objection number two is a little bit longer worded longer. If unconditional election is true, then God must be to blame for sinners ending up in hell instead of sinners freely rejecting Christ and facing the consequences of your choice. This was your question. What about free will? It's, easier, it's an easier pill to swallow to say God gave people free will and they chose to reject him and that's why they ended up in hell, not because God didn't choose them. Is that an easier pill to swallow? What's, what's, what's easier to swallow? I chose to reject God and live with the consequences versus God did not choose me. He passed me over. Okay. Now, before you go any further, that does not get God off the hook. Last week, we thought we went into the deep end of the water. Here, we're going to go a little bit in the deep end of the water. Let's just ask the question. If God has exhaustive foreknowledge 
and is the all-powerful creator, then God creates at least some people he knows will never come to faith. When God created the world, did God know every single person that was ever going to live? And did he create knowing that some people would not trust him for salvation? And did he create anyway? So who's responsible for creating the world where people don't trust Jesus? God. Now, why he created? I have no idea. He did create. So here's the thing. God could have intervened and saved all or chosen all or overridden his limitation and done something to make or even allow or orchestrate all people to go to heaven, but he did not. So at the very least, God could not have created those he foreknew would be lost. So let me, let me answer the objection. What you're saying is if God chooses some and leaves others in their sins, the reason they end up in hell is because God put them there. It's a better pill to swallow for me to think that I freely chose to go there and use my free will. You see the difference there? Okay. But let's ask the question. If you, if God knew, let's say, let's go back to Brad and Kevin. Okay. If God looked down the corridors of time and saw Kevin never accepting him, could God at any point in Kevin's life intervene to make him come to faith? Yes, God could. Okay. But God did not. So you have to ask the question, why didn't God do it? When he could have. We don't know. But you can't lay the blame. You can't say, well, you know, at least I get God off the hook and it was my choice. You can never get God off the hook if he has ultimate knowledge of all things. Because if God has ultimate knowledge of all things, any point along the way, somebody, either when he created the world, he knew that person was going to hell, or he looked down the corridors of time after he created or whatever and saw that person never trusting him. God could have, number one, never created the world with that person, or number two, he could have intervened anywhere along the timeline and caused that person to come to faith. But the fact that God went ahead and created and the fact that God did not intervene still shows that God allowed it to happen. And you may say, well, why? I don't know. What some people would say is God values people's free will so much that he allows them to use their free will to reject him and he doesn't intervene. But you still don't get God off the hook. Because then you would say, well, God, if, if, if you know that, you, if you can save that person and, and you're not, then why? I don't know the answer to that. That's a deep question. Does everybody understand that, that objection there? So what I'm trying to say is, no matter what view you hold to, unless you believe God doesn't know the future, which is like what we talked about, open theists, the heresy, if you, don't, if you believe God doesn't know the future, then you, know, you can do whatever you want. But if you believe God knows the future, God knows all things, God has foreknowledge, you can never get him off the hook. He either ordains it or allows it. And if he allows it, then he's still the one allowing it for a purpose when he could have not allowed it. Does that make sense? <coughs> all right. Objection number three. I, I often hear this too. God predestines only a tiny group to heaven and then damns the rest of humanity to hell. It's this tiny little group, this small group of the elect. Number one, where in the Bible does it ever say it's a small number? Because let's read Revelation 7, 9 through 10. 
After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation and from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Okay, this is John's vision of heaven. And what is described there? A multitude that no one could number from all tribes. Do we know the absolute number of the elect? Is it a fixed number? Yes. Do we know what that number is? No. Is it a large number? Yes. Now, you can only speculate. I mean, I like to, you know, Charles Spurgeon believed that there would be more people in heaven than would be in hell. There's really no way of knowing. But don't ever let anybody say, you guys believe only a small number of people are the elect or the frozen chosen and there's this small number and, you know, you believe everybody else is going to hell. I don't believe that. I believe that it's a number that no man can count from every tribe, language, and peoples. And, and, and I don't know who the elect are, which leads to the, the, the objection number four. And this was the question you had last week. I'm going to answer your question. So here's objection number four. If God already determines who is elect, then why should we pray for the lost and why should we evangelize the lost? Wasn't that your question last week? Maybe not the prayer part, but the evangelize. He's like, why do we, if God's got it all figured out and people are already chosen, why do we pray for lost people? Why do we do evangelism? Okay. Yeah, so let, let me, let's just give a couple of answers to this. Well, first of all, God commands us to evangelize lost people, whether we know they're elect or not. I mean, let's just take election out of the way. We know we're supposed to do it. Mark 16, 15, he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Okay. The Great Commission says what? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Okay, so we're commanded to do it. So are we commanded to pray? Are we commanded to share the gospel? Yes. So that would be reason enough, regardless of election, because God commands us to do it. But the second question, and I, and I got to this a little bit last week, God uses means to bring about his ends, the salvation of his elect. What are those means? The means are this. You sharing the gospel is the means God brings about to call people to himself. How will they hear unless someone goes to them? So let's talk about this for a moment. Regardless of what view of the election you believe, let's just let's camp out where we can all agree. Okay, so if I had Arminians in here and we had we had all of us had different views of, of election, there's one thing we would all agree upon. Let's ask the question: How is a person saved? What must happen for a person to be saved? They have to hear the gospel in such a way that they repent and believe. Would you all agree with that? Nobody's saved without hearing the gospel, repenting, and believing. So. What we do is we share the gospel with every single person we come in contact with because we don't know if they're elect or not. Now, Charles Spurgeon, another Charles Spurgeon, he said this. It would be so great, back in London in the 1860s, it would be so great if God painted a white stripe down all the people that he had chosen in London. I would go around London pulling up their coattails, looking for the white stripe, and I'd only share the gospel with them because I know they would get saved. But he's like, God hasn't done that. So I share the gospel with everybody. Okay, let me ask you a question. Have you ever heard me on Sunday morning say this? If you are elect 
out there, don't listen to this because it doesn't apply to you. God's going to save you anyway. If you're the non-elect, well, tough luck. It's not going to happen for you. Have you ever heard me say anything like that? What do I say? If you're here today, repent, believe. I mean, something like repent, believe. If you're, like, if you're under the sound of my voice, repent, believe. Because I don't know who the elect are. So the, God has chosen those whom will come. The way they come is through our shin. Have you heard of anybody that's randomly gotten saved by just being zapped by walking down the street without ever hearing the gospel? Even people that maybe got saved in, in a hotel room with a Gideon's Bible, there's still the word there. I mean, most people, most, let's say most people get saved by somebody sharing the gospel. How many of you got saved here by somebody telling you? Whether it was your parent, a pastor, an evangelist, a radio preacher, a crusade, Sunday school teacher, you got saved because somebody told it to you. Okay? So that's the means God uses. And third, election makes our evangelism more hopeful and gives us greater confidence that our efforts will not be in vain and that God will save his elect. Okay, when you pray for a lost person's salvation, what are you praying for? You ever heard anybody pray this? Dear Heavenly Father, I pray this person because they're not totally dead in sin and they don't have blinders on their eyes, I pray that they use their free will to believe in you. You ever heard anybody pray that? What do they pray? Lord, please take the blinders off their eyes. Lord, please move in their heart. Lord, please soften their heart. Lord, please, please bring some... What are you praying for God to do? Something obviously you can't, that only God can do. That only God can do. So you're praying for God to do a work in them to bring them to faith. And so... When you share the gospel, you don't have to worry about twisting somebody's arm because if they're elect, eventually they will come. And Paul was given this encouragement in Acts 18, 9 through 11. So Paul had been in Corinth for about two years. And he was probably getting discouraged. He was a tent maker. He was sharing the gospel. And... Jesus showed up to him one night in a vision. So Acts 18, 9 through 11. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. What's, what's Jesus saying to Paul? Don't be discouraged in your evangelism. Don't be afraid. I've got many in this city. Many, many who? Many who have yet to believe. Many who have yet to believe. I have many of the elect in this city, so you go out and keep preaching. And what does Paul do? I don't know who the elect are, but I'm going to stay there for a year and six months, and I'm going to teach the Word of God. And I'm going to trust that if I share the gospel, those whom the Father has given to the Son will come. Those that are appointed to eternal life will believe. Okay? So objection number one, God's unfair. Objection number two, you can't get God off the hook, even if you believe in free will. Objection number three, oh, it's just a small number. It's, you, you guys believe it's like a tiny number. And number four, why pray and do evangelism if God's got it all figured out? Those are the four objections. Okay? Now, let's look at the last paragraph because there's a lot of wisdom in this. Um, they didn't have to put this last paragraph in here, but I think they did because of the controversial nature of, and kind of what you said earlier, uh, Reese, about kind of sadness. 
Um, so this last paragraph, paragraph seven, addresses that. So let's read paragraph seven. It says, the doctrine of the high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care so that those heeding the will of God revealed in his word and obeying him may be assured of their eternal election by the certainty of their effectual calling. In this way, this doctrine will give reasons for praise, reverence, and admiration of God, as well as humility, diligence, and rich comfort to all who sincerely obey the gospel. The doctrine of the high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care. What does that mean? It's a touchy subject. And you've got to be careful how you preach and teach it. Because it brings about a lot of different emotions. So there are two ditches when it comes to teaching the doctrine of predestination. Okay, here's ditch number one. The first is that it's so controversial, you never teach it at all. You don't talk about God's sovereignty. You don't talk about election. You avoid it at all costs. When you're, when you're doing expository preaching, you come across Ephesians chapter 1, you skip it because you're afraid to talk about it. I don't really know what election means, but we're not going to talk about it today. So one, one ditch is you never talk about it. Okay. The second ditch, I think it's just as bad, is to go beyond what the Bible says into speculative things, and that's all you talk about. All you talk about is election. All you talk about is predestination. That's, that, that's your drumbeat. That's all you talk about. So when sharing the gospel with an unsaved person, you focus more on their election than on the gospel. Okay? So... The one extreme is I never talk about it at all because it's too touchy. The other is that's all I talk about. And you leave out like what we talked about earlier, preaching Jesus and the need to believe in him. Um, so it needs to be dealt with prudence. Um, now, you guys know at Emmanuel we deal with difficult topics from the pulpit and difficult topics here on Wednesday night. We shouldn't shy away. From, if, if, all right, let me ask a question. If it's in the Bible, should we shy away from it? What's my job as pastor? To present it to the best of my ability based upon what the word says and then for us to submit to it whether we like it or not. On any doctrine. Whether it's predestination, whether it's any... So, to be faithful to the text, we, what the confession is saying is we've got to be real careful how we handle this because this is going to bring up a lot of emotions, a lot of confusion. So, don't shy away from it, but make sure you preach it with accuracy and you, you do your best to present what the doctrine says. And then the way that paragraph ends on this whole doctrine of predestination is what should the doctrine of predestination produce in us? Well, a couple of things. The doctrine of election displays the glory of God. It displays the glory of God. Because you didn't you contributed nothing to your salvation, it was solely of God. Which number two, the doctrine of election produces in us humility. Did God have to save you? No. Did God choose to save you? That should humble you to your knees. And then the last thing the confession says there in that last paragraph is this doctrine should give you rich comfort. Now, that's, that's something that maybe you need to struggle with. Is it comforting? There's two ways you can approach the doctrine of predestination. It's a great comfort to me or it's a great source of anxiety and stress to me and frustration. So... Hopefully it's a great source of assurance and comfort, not a source of anxiety. So, Jeff, you left your question to the end. Lay it all well, out. To make a comment real quick on that last thing, I think it's what you're looking at. It's a great comfort 
to me to know that. On the other side, you say anxiety, I say painful mm -hmm. to think that you could have your yep. loved ones, family members, not be part of that inclusion, if you will. Yeah. But um, now I don't know if this is uh, contextually different or what, but in Second Peter two, um, or excuse me, three verse nine. God wants all people. To... Yeah. So you, so you have that not wishing that any should perish, so on and so forth. Footnote: See Second uh, Timothy two four. Go there. Um, yeah. the, 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 who desires all people to be saved and to come into the knowledge of truth, and then on two four you have this uh, explanation of those two views: the Calvinist and the Armenian. But I don't understand exactly what it's trying to communicate. Okay. In those <laughs> okay, that's a good. So you got all right. So let's turn to let's first turn to Second Timothy. Um, I'll answer this the best I can without notes. Okay, so be two, four. Trust, trust me. Second Timothy two four. Or excuse me, first Timothy. Yeah, first Timothy, first Timothy, Timothy two four. Guys, if okay. I said second, I so, apologize. all right. So how much time? <clears throat> okay, I'm gonna. We got what twenty minutes. Does anybody have any other questions? Are you okay if I address them? No, these are two good objections. Is anybody okay with the objections here? Anybody have any other questions? Or? Well, mine is okay. okay. It really wasn't an objection. It's more of no trying question. to understand okay. on how Okay, so the question, here's the question that you would have based on these two, these two scriptures. If God has chosen some people to be saved, how do we reconcile that with the scripture that says God desires all people to be saved? Is that basically the question? And, and, and if I can quickly throw in there too, and I maybe wonder if this is where Reese comes from, is that it, it's not that we do anything, but it is God. But it's so. In other words, that, that you're not a robot. The way right. we can, right. the way we perceive love is, is you don't demand it. Right. You don't. You know, it, it is a. It's just, it, it's okay. natural in a sense. So there's two, there's two questions here, and I need, to, I need to figure out which one I want to answer. Okay, so there's the one question you asked earlier about free will. And there's the other question about how do we reconcile these passages that said God wants all people to be saved. Okay, so which one of the two do you want me to answer tonight? Because I will answer both of them in the time allotted. Well, okay, you guys okay with that? Let's do, the, let's do the God desiring all people to be saved first, okay? Because we're there. Okay, so I want you to actually start in verse chapter 2, verse 1 of 1 Timothy. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for who? All people. Okay, and then how is that quantified in verse 2? Kings and those who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. Okay, sometimes when the word all is used, it can be used in two different ways. All meaning every single person, or all meaning all types and kinds. Men, women, kings, rulers, Jew, Gentile. Contextually here, it seems like Paul is saying, I want you to pray for all types of people. I want you to pray for kings, I want you to pray for rulers. I want to pray for, um, I don't know if it, I don't, like somebody would say, I don't think Paul said to take the, the phone book out in Ephesus and go through it and like pray for every single, it's all kinds of people. Okay, so that's the context. It's all kinds mean the people who can't speak. Yeah, all kinds of people would be like, as opposed to like all without exception or all without in, in, inclusion, all without exception or all, okay, so all meaning every single person who ever lived and will live. Or all meaning all types. 
men, women, rich, poor, slave, free, Jew, Gentile, young, old, kinds, but not every single individual. Okay, so that's okay, so that's the context here. So let's keep that going. Verse 3, this is good and pleasing in the sight of God, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, if you just keep contextually there, what is God desiring? All, all kinds of people to be saved. Um, he's desiring not just, especially not just the Jews, but all, not just the rich, but all different kinds of people to be saved. Okay? Um, so that's the quick answer. Now go to 2 Peter 3.9. And then if you share that too, if I may real quick, by the day of the Lord, this is 10, uh, will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with the roar. Um, but anyway, to me then, I also thought of the idea of God predestined so he knows how many. Yeah. But yet, it's saying, like, don't wish for him to come back too soon, in a sense, well, because okay. there'll be those that... Well, let's let's look at 2 Peter 3, 9. Okay. Oh, like... So is everybody in 2 Peter 3? Okay. Some of these <laughs> verses are ripped out of context, and they just, like, have one verse, and, like... But let's go back to chapter 3, verse 1. Okay. This is now... Or actually, let's go back to um, chapter 1. Who's Paul writing, or who's Peter writing to? Simon Peter, servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of God, our Savior Jesus Christ. God, Peter's writing to believers, <clears throat> those who have been saved by faith. Okay? And then you get to chapter 3, verse 1. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved, and both that I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Okay, so who's he writing to? Believers. Okay, so now he gets to verse nine. The Lord is not slow. <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward who? You. You, not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. What I think Peter's saying here is that God is delaying the second coming of Christ because the full number of the elect is not yet coming. And he's being patient with the elect, you, and wants all of the elect to repent. And so there are people saying, well, where's, where's Jesus the second coming? He's not coming. The people are scoffing. And, and Peter's basically saying, God is being slow and patient. Because let's think about it this way. If the number's fixed, if the number's fixed, <laughs> you can think about it this way. When that last person who's supposed to get saved is get saved, it's pretty close to the end, right? But we don't know when the end is. And we don't know who that last person is. But we do know for the past 2,000 years, Jesus hasn't come back. So there's obviously more elect people that God has planned to be saved. And he's, obviously he knows when Jesus is going to come back in, in that timetable. But I think it's this whole idea that God is allowing the unfolding of history to happen so that every single one of the elect comes to faith in that time and come to repent. So it falls, all falls under that umbrella. It's yeah. just the context is different. Yes. Okay. Now, free will. Yeah, like you're not programmed. So, <clears throat> let's make, let's talk about an unsaved person for a moment. Okay? 
I'm gonna, I'm gonna make a statement up here. It's not in your notes. You can only choose based upon your nature. And I would even say circumstances. So let's just stop for a moment and say, did you choose what gender you were when you were born? Did you choose what nation to be born? Did you choose what family you were born? Okay. So there are some things that happened to you just by being alive you had no control over. So, are you born with a nature? What is that nature? It's a sinful nature. Okay. So, you can only choose based upon your nature. If you have a fallen sinful nature, you do have free will to choose. Too soon. Too soon. You have, well, I'm just saying, you're saying yeah. it's your nature. So. Well, you have, you have free will to choose based upon your nature. As a person who is dead in sin and lost and enslaved to sin, what will they always choose based go. upon their nature? Sin. Will they ever choose Christ? No. Can they ever choose Christ? No. Unless something happens to do what? Change their nature. Can you change your nature? Can the Ethiopian change the color of the skin? Can the leopard change the color of his spots? So you, can you change who are accustomed to sinning? That's from the book of Jeremiah. So yes, in a sense, people have free will to choose. You make choices every day. Blue socks, red socks. Broncos, Raiders. Why do you ever choose the Raiders? 49ers, Chiefs. You know, you, you have choices all day long. The point is, is that when it comes to making moral and spiritual choices to accept Christ, you cannot choose positively because your nature will not allow you to do that. So you do have free will, but left to yourself, your free will will never choose for Christ. Unless God does something to change you, and only God changes those whom he has chosen because they will be called and they will come. Others, remember, he leaves behind they're never going to choose because God didn't choose them and he's not going to intervene to bring them to himself. Okay. Well, okay, so I've had somebody in the just recently. Mm -hmm. Well, babies are innocent and I'm like... I mean, that's a whole other discussion yeah. about oh, the salvation okay. of infants okay. and yeah. mentally incapable people like Zachary. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So we've got 10 minutes. We can leave now or... Um, about, are there any other questions? Comments or Snyder remarks? This is the last week we're spending on predestination at Oyster Creek. This is heavy stuff. So, it's your chance to ask the questions now because I think next week, what's next week? Creation? Chapter 4 next week is on creation. So We may do creation and divine providence together since creation only has like three. Go ahead. I'll to beat this up. So, when, if you would please in First Timothy on that 2-4, when you, you read... If you want to read real quick to yourself or whatever, where it says both both Arminian Calvinist theologians respond to God's desire, da, 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 da. and then you go down and it says there clearly, clearly teaches the free and universal offer of the gospel to every single human being desires, in quotes, 
shows this offer is a bona fide expression of God's goodwill. Okay. I mean, what's all that okay, saying so, to me? Okay, so, <laughs> okay, so um, yeah, so what has happened historically is that Arminians have said of Calvinists, since you guys believe God predestines, then that you can't genuinely offer Jesus Christ to those who have not been predestined. You can't genuinely offer the gospel to people. Um, they would say, it's the question, like, why share the gospel? So what they would say is, if you believe God has chosen some and not others, then how can you in good sincerity tell somebody that they're going to be saved if you don't know they are? Because you don't know if they're elect. Or giving them a false sense, like, okay, so let me ask you this. One thing I won't ever say to somebody, and you may disagree with me, I don't ever say to somebody, Jesus died for you, specifically, and you must trust in Christ. And if you do, well, how how would I put that? Maybe maybe I'd say it differently. The, The free offer of the gospel is this, okay? Do we know who the elect are? Can we freely offer Christ to everybody we come in contact with? Are we responsible for knowing the identity of the elect? No. Are we responsible for freely offering the gospel? Yes. Does God determine the results? Okay. So let's just put it this way. Let's take, let's take away all the clutter. And let's put it this way. Stay in your lane. Okay? So what's your lane? Your lane is, I'm, what are you only responsible for? Praying for unsaved people and sharing the gospel. That's all, you can, that's, all, that's all you can really do. Even if you believe in free will, that's all you can do. Okay. God is going to save whom he's going to save. So even if you believe they're using their free will and they weren't, you know, the one, you can't make somebody believe. So control what you can control. You can control sharing the gospel and praying and leaving the results up to God. And you share it with everybody because you don't make distinctions on who is elected who's not. And then trust that God will work it all out. And this, it may be that you share the gospel and share the gospel and you think, man, this person's never coming to faith in Christ. And then maybe 10 years down the road, somebody out of the blue shares with them on a plane and then they get saved. But you're the one that planted the seeds. And it wasn't their time yet, but God is, you know, so don't get discouraged just because they don't respond immediately. It may take more time. So with that being in the Bible, is <laughs> this is good. So... I kind of look at it two ways because I am more the Armenian and it doesn't mean I'm right, but I'm just saying that if I looked at how you explain it and yeah. the gospel being that way, it would, I'd have to be honest, even though it hurts to say it, but is more of a dogma type of thing because the gospel says it. But if I was to look at it as human, as, as well, when I look at it the other way, to me, it looks to me like it doesn't matter just by what you said. Well, because see. stay in your lane, we're commanded to do okay. these, let, and then... Maybe I so should. I look at it more like a doctrinal type yeah. of deal. Let me, let me, how would you Yeah, I probably should have prefaced that. So the, doc, the doctrine of predestination is not a dogma. Okay, that's what it's I'm not a, It's not a dogma, like dogma, doctrine, preferences. It is yeah, not, it is not a dogma because there are fine Christians who disagree upon it, and it doesn't determine, like... The virgin birth, the deity of Christ, the Trinity, the, you know, the dogmas that we have. Okay. So predestination is a doctrine. Mode of doctrine. Okay. Speaking in tongues is a doctrine. Mode of baptism is a doctrine. The unfolding of end times is a doctrine.
know, eternal security. Can you reach? Those are doctrines. Now, at Emmanuel, we hold the doctrinal distinctives differently than maybe the Nazarene church because they're going to be more the Arminian. So with that being said, they're not dogmas, but they are critical doctrines to Emmanuel that will come out in our preaching and teaching and our theology and in our confession of faith. And you don't have to be in lockstep with every one of the doctrines, but dogmas, yes. And you've been here long enough, Jeff, to know that... Well, I was just going to say that that is not a make-or-break Right. I mean, I've said that before. It's like, that isn't going to cause me not to come here because right. I know right. your heart and I know right. you right. long after God and preaching his word and not taking away from or at right. so let so, so let me... Let me so, yeah, I'm just, yeah, so let me finish yeah. with this statement. Maybe this will put everybody at ease. If I had to choose between preaching the gospel and telling people they need to repent and believe and preaching about predestination, I'd always choose the gospel. Does that make sense? Now, it doesn't mean I don't believe in predestination, but... But if, if somebody stuck a gun to my head, I would always preach the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation of all who believe. So if we camp out on that, where, where that centerpiece is, everybody needs to hear the gospel in such a way to repent and believe. Let's camp out there. Why they believe, that's your view of predestination. That they need to believe, that's where we want to camp out. Does that, does that make sense? And if we stay there, then I think it helps us to be balanced. And people in the church cannot, can feel comfortable because we do have people that have become members of Emmanuel that haven't been fully embraced in the doctrine of predestination the way maybe we believe it and they're still members because of all the other things related to our church. It's just important for me to eventually accept the truths and be in line with God. Because it's, God it's has predestined you to become a... Uh, <laughs> yeah. All right, let's pray. Okay. I'm just saying, let's it's, pray. it's important that I don't mess so, it up or misunderstand it. So, Father, thank you for this time tonight. Lord, it is, again, a, a deep subject. And, Lord, we can um, we can think about these, and, and, Lord, it causes all different maybe thoughts, emotions, maybe some questions. But one thing we do want to just praise you that you didn't have to save us, but you did. You didn't have to send Jesus, but you did. And Lord, if anything, help us to be humble and help us to be graceful with those that may disagree with us. And let us most of all just praise you, Jesus, for dying on the cross and rising again. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.